Hi, film addicts. Welcome back to part two with Stephen L. Sears. Um, we're just having such a good time, and we want to continue our lovely conversation. Mind you, he's writer, author, producer of some of our most favorite TV shows like Riptide, The A-Team, Walker, Texas Ranger, Superboy, She Spies, um, even uh, Raven for CBS, and Xena, Warrior, Princess. Let's welcome Stephen back to the show. Hi, Steve. Hello, we're back again. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking like you were a Gator and and then also a Seminole. <laughs> you have Florida State mm-hmm. and right. University of Florida, which is really fun. And then you came to Los Angeles and kind of just somehow you fell into the business of writing by this good fortune, but also having the talent to 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 actually seal the deal. And that was amazing. Yeah, everybody has their own story uh, about getting into the business. Um, when I'm asked by people, you know, how do you how do you break into the business? Uh, I say, well, when you do it, you'll tell me because everybody is unique. The the course that I followed, if anybody heard the last um, segment, um, the course I followed was actually textbook. The, you know, I my partner and I, Bert Pearl, he and I wrote spec scripts. We made a phone call. We submitted a script. We were brought in for a meeting. We got an assignment, and off the assignment, we ended up doing um, uh, working on staff. Now, it's that's textbook. That's what you're told. That's the way it goes. The difference, though, is that it went directly like that for us. There was no drop back. It wasn't like we wrote a script and nobody returned the phone calls, or we wrote a script, got a meeting, they never called us back, or we had to go back and do something else, or that we got an assignment that then has was rewritten by somebody else, and we had to wait three more assignments before a staff job. We did it directly. Fortunate, luck, kismet, fate. But again, I'm not going to. Uh, uh, I have just enough ego to say, Bert and I were the right people for that particular moment, and we took advantage of it. Yeah, um, that was amazing. Uh, I have. I have to ask you this: this Walker Texas Ranger that you know with Chuck Norris. How was that? Because you know. It, that it went on for a while, right? The show that this seems oh, like. Oh a- God, that show absolutely. That was now. I I was not working on staff for uh, Walker. I wrote two episodes. Okay. Um, one of them one of them was produced. Um, Frank Lupo, who had co-created the A Team and so many of the shows with Steve Cannell, he moved over to producing, um, being the exec producer and showrunner on Walker Texas Ranger, and so he asked me if I would write a script, which I did, and that one didn't get produced. Uh, there were politics going on in the office, apparently. Um, that one didn't get produced. Then when uh, Frank left, they hired Tom Blunquist. I mentioned him in my previous uh, podcast. He was one of the producers on the side. And uh, Tom had me come in. I wrote an episode for him, and that one was produced. And um, I met Chuck um, since I didn't go down to the set. I wasn't working on the show as staff. Uh I met him at uh, the parties that we would have, and he was great. I liked him. Um, very, very uh, pleasant person. Not at all what you would, well, I shouldn't say that. Not at all what you would expect from his old movies, the uh, the martial arts movies. Very much what you would expect after watch, walking, uh, watching Walker, Texas Ranger. Just a very nice guy. Yeah. And then, um, and then talking about martial arts, you did Raven, which was another martial arts, right? Yes. And secret yes. societies. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Raven was another one uh, produced again by Frank Lupo. As as you might be picking up here, networking is extremely <laughs> important. <laughs> uh, keeping good relationships, but also being able to deliver the goods. Anytime somebody hires you in the business, they are putting their credibility on the line because they have to vouch for you to the powers that be, the networks of the studios or the, um, the production companies. And if you fulfill that and make them look good, then they will take you wherever they go. They will try to get you because they can count on you and they can rely on you. Uh, when I produce shows, I have also done that. I've called on people that I know, uh, people I want to work with and uh, people who are uh, reliable and extremely talented. But I've also tried to keep at least half of the assignments, the freelance assignments, reserved for people I have never met before because I want the new blood. I want that new talent to come out, those new voices to be able to be heard. Uh, it, it's been a pretty good mix. We, we've unfortunately gotten away from that. As uh, as those of you know out there, it's extremely difficult to try to break into the business. But um, it does thrive on new blood. It needs it. Yeah. And then also you did uh, also worked on Xena Warrior Princess and then uh, Sheena, uh, the the jungle prince. She was so uh, like, was that like kind of a spinoff or like completely separate in two different things? Like, um, do you want to do any notes on those? Because I was like, wow, you got Xena Warrior Princess. <laughs> then you got Sheena. And it's another adventure yes. and a lot of um, sexy babes in those karate chopping, right? Martial arts. <laughs> Um, no, well, well, uh, I went from Xena to Sheena. It's like I suddenly I'm in a pattern of Inas. Uh, <laughs> no, Xena and Sheena, two completely different shows. And I had uh, uh, worked on Xena for five and a half seasons and had a great time with that. And then I left there because I was offered an opportunity to create uh, a new series with Sony TriStar along with Doug Schwartz. And Doug was one of the co-creators of Baywatch. And the Sheena franchise, that that goes back to the 1930s, the original Sheena uh, comic book character, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And there were, um, uh, it was a movie made in the 1980s that Columbia uh, Studios had made, uh, starring Tanya Roberts. And Columbia then became Sony Studios, was bought up by Sony. So Sony wanted to try to bring this back as a TV series. So they brought Doug in and then Doug called me and we went in together and pitched our version of it. Now, the original Sheena comic book, going back to the 1930s, was a product of its time. So the idea of this golden-haired white woman coming to save Africa from itself was absolutely obscene. So we approached it differently. We made it more of a spiritual show. We still had action, still had all that stuff, the action and adventure. But we tried to focus on the spirituality of, of African uh, culture to try to save the Western civilization from what we were doing to ourselves. So it's very, very complicated. But at the same time, you know, you have a studio that says, great, you're doing all that wonderful spiritual message stuff, but uh, make sure that she beats up the bad guys and, uh, you know, climbs around the trees. So um, a little outfit. <laughs> well, you know, and you know something, the outfit was actually a huge discussion because in the old Sheena comics and as popularly shown, She's wearing like, um, at times, leopard skin bikinis. And I, I said right up front, she's not gonna do that. I said, yeah, I understand the sexuality of it. And I understand that's what we're, you know, we wanna sell some of that. But I said, I really have to believe it's somewhat practical. So we actually redesigned the outfit. And I, I 
honestly got a lot of flack from the hardcore fans who had, you know, were big fans of Sheena for a long time because they wanted that character again. So it's kind of like, um, did we utilize the sexuality? Absolutely. Of course, that's a marketing tool. Um, but I always find it interesting if you also look back at Xena, a lot of the critics or people who complimented the show would also say that Xena uh, was wearing those skimpy outfits. Go look at the show. It actually wasn't. It wasn't a skimpy outfit. It was, you know, there's like gym shorts underneath it. Um, but it was the way that it was presented. Lucy has, uh, anybody who's met Lucy or has seen her, she has a way of walking into the room that demands presence. She has this incredible charisma about her. So we try to follow um, a little bit of that in the uh, in doing the interpretation of Sheena. Now, at the same time, I had to deal with the studio politics because there was the marketing side and then the messaging side. And you have to find a balance in there. So Sheena was never exactly what I wanted it to be. But then again, that's kind of the way it is in the business. And Sheena lasted for about a year and a half. Um, and we were doing well, but we were canceled um, because finances dried up, 9-11, uh, because of 9-11. Uh, when that happened, a lot of the international financing kind of like dried up and uh, we were canceled as a result of that. And Gina Lee Nolan played uh, Sheena. John Allen Nelson played the um, the co-star. Uh, Kevin Quigley played Graham. We had a very, very good group. Yeah, you just had so many amazing shows that you worked on. Like, And then, like you said, when you were growing up, you loved this fantasy and making all these worlds. So like you're working on all these TV shows with your your um, entertainment family from your incredible producers, writers, creators that you're working with. And um, so then you, then, then you started, you did some, as an author, you had nonfiction book, the non-user friendly guide for aspiring TV writers, which I love. <laughs> I love yes. that. Yeah. Oh, before, before we start talking about your books, can you tell the story about how you sold the tv pilot while you're waiting in line huh. yeah we got to tell everyone about that story okay it, it's not really an elaborate story but okay. this harkens back to a time that um unfortunately is past uh these days anybody who's pursuing uh, getting into the business there are so many different I, I'm, I'm doing quote fingers right now rules that you have to follow most of them you read online many of them from people who have never done it but they've read about the rules so the only rule is that you succeed. Um, these days you are expected to uh, write up a pitch presentation, have a few examples of the scripts for your TV series, plus a pitch deck. And the pitch deck includes all the backgrounds of the characters, uh, even possible suggested photographs of, um, or photographs of suggested talent that might play the characters, a breakdown of all the episodes over one or two seasons, it's an extremely involved um, process and you have to have all of that material. And that's before you even get a meeting. Now, back in the day, says the old man speaking, <laughs> when there were the three networks, um, if you worked, you were known. So you could, you know, people kind of, they kept an eye out for who were the rising stars so you could get meetings. And your reputation and your background, that's really what kind of counted at that time. So my first uh, pilot was through Columbia, um, Columbia Television, and it was sold to ABC, but it, it, we didn't go to production. Uh, the second one, which was sold actually at the same time, 
was to CBS, which was based on a screenplay that I had written. But I had gone in with the studio's backing and we pitched to the networks. Now, that was one way to do it. But to show you how easy going it was, again, I'm using finger quotes with easy, uh, I did sell a series, a pilot idea. I got a deal when I was standing in line at a grocery store. And I was just standing there and it was a long line and there was a guy in front of me. We just chatted. I can't remember how the chat started, something in his cart. And the question, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a writer. I work mostly in television. He goes, oh, I work in television and, uh, well, television and film. And he said, got any projects? And I said, well, I'm pushing this. And I just mentioned something randomly. And he looked at me, he said, he said, all right, tomorrow morning, we have to talk. I want this. And he handed me his card. And that was it. Next day, called in. We agreed on it. Contracts were worked and I had a pilot deal. Oh, Boom. my gosh. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> but I think that you, it was your destiny to write because it's just like you're in line and you meet a TV producer. I mean, that's just like one in like a billion chance that you actually got it. Well, it you know, that's, there's an interesting difference about that when because uh, this touches on another thing so much there's so much good information out there with the internet and so much bad information one of the things um for television even though it's not as bad as it used to be is that los angeles is really where it happens so something that people hate to hear if they don't live here is that really you're optimizing your chances by living in los angeles now not everybody can get up and move to los angeles uh with films it's only slightly better and the reason is this, if you're writing a script, you're selling the script. In television, you're actually selling yourself because you've got to be part of a team. So the networking is extremely, uh, extremely important. So if, you are, if you're living somewhere else and you want to be part of a TV writers group, you go online, you find out a local group, you figure out a time everybody can meet, and there you are, your fellow writers, you get together and you talk and you develop and you create, and that's great. In Los Angeles, you can't avoid anybody. Literally, you can be in a, in a line and the person there is probably working in the business. Uh, you can go to a, as I used to put it, you could go to a Starbucks and see how many aspiring writers are sitting there with their laptops. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a writer. And odds are the cat has representation. So, <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> at, at least a so minimum you're constantly attorney. surrounded by these people. <laughs> but that's true because, like, um, there's this lady that I met, and she's like, "Oh yeah, do you like punk and um, punk?" She's like, she said, "Oh, I'm doing a song, Punk or New Wave," and I go, "Oh my god, I love New Wave punk," and I didn't know who she was, and I'm like, "Oh, do you want to be on my podcast?" And she's like, "Um." Like, oh gosh, you know, and she ended up being like Diane Warren with like so many like nominations and wins. And I was like, oh my gosh. Huh? But she's like, oh, I'll, I just did so many of them. But sure, here's my um, assistant. I'll have my assistant contact you. So maybe she'll come on the show. I'm not sure. But like uh -huh. you said, that's literally like, I think I met her at Melrose. Like, didn't know who she was, but she was talking about like punk. And I was like, oh, I love the new wave and stuff like that. I go, oh, you're a singer because I want to get some singers on the show because I think music's important. Is music um, important for TV as it is for film, like composing for film and music? How do you, do you see yes. that? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Uh, it, it is, it's crucial to it. Anybody who's seen an unsweetened film or an unsweetened episode, by unsweetened, I mean, it does not have music, doesn't have sound effects, uh, doesn't have Foley work, none of that. 
you will sense it immediately. Not even sense it. You will say, what's going on here? I don't know how this is happening. Um, the person who is listed as the composer, uh, the musical people on a TV show and also on film, they are extremely talented creative artists who are a part of the creative team. Um, music is something that speaks to us inherently, not just a spiritual thing. It's a part of our evolutionary soul. We respond to it. You can set the mood. Anybody who's like gone online and found a, a teaser for some dramatic show and yet somebody's put the you know Benny Hill theme behind it as a joke, you realize, wow, that changes everything. It now looks hysterical. It's a funny, it's a comedy movie. It's, it's supposed to be a drama. That's how much music affects. Uh, my music is very, I mean, my writing is very music-based because I also came out of music in the sense that was the other artistic thing I pursued. I was in the school orchestra, band, and even in, uh, in I was in the Gator Band. I was there. That you was were? Uh, oh, my God. I was in the Gator Gators. Band. Yeah. You were in the Gator Band? Like, yeah. seriously? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was. My first, my first year at University of Florida, I was in the Gator Band. But since I was never taught how to write, I never, I never had classes in it, uh, except ones that I've taught. Um, I, I look at my writing as being more music-based because there's a flow and there's a rhythm to my writing. I can describe it in musical terms. And anybody who understands music will get it immediately. But I'm using the musical terms to describe the emotional impact. That's what happens. And if you watch a movie where... Um, You'll see some movies where it's that guitar string thing happens every time. Throughout the dialogue, throughout everything. Uh, that's not. I'm not a big fan of that because it's only being background. Um, it's because somebody in the creative process is afraid of silence and they feel, feel like you have to fill it with music. And this is an important thing, especially for up-and-coming composers. You know that in a musical piece, a rest note is there for a reason. A rest note means it's silent. You're not playing the instrument at that particular moment. That's because silence is a part of the musical process. It's an important part. You have to know when the music comes in, when it goes out, how it rises, how it falls, and all of that has to affect the story and the presentation. So the composers who can do that well, they are incredibly valuable. They are worth well, they're worth more money than anybody gets paid in the business because we never get paid enough, <laughs> even though people out there say we get paid too much, believe me. Um, but yeah, their value cannot be underestimated. That's amazing. And then, um, so, so we're started to go into your nonfiction book, The Non-User Friendly Guide for Aspiring TV Writers. So do check it out, everyone, because as you can hear, Stephen L. Sears is an amazing writer and, and just he has a, he really wants to help maybe people like me get in hopefully or you they're listening could be inspired <laughs> to find your path and then also you have so many short stories in anthologies such as jeff sturgeon's lost cities of earth and aliens versus predator the ultimate prey collection that sounds amazing and then can we talk yet about the stag staglex x your graphic novel with time time new york times best-selling author kevin l anderson and you Kevin said J. Anderson, yeah. Kevin J. Anderson, yeah. So is, do you want to talk about any of that stuff coming up? Because um sure. yeah. Yeah, I um <laughs> I decided to 
boy, that's just going to sound so arrogant. Um, when people ask me if I'm a writer, I kind of correct them because um, I say I'm a storyteller. In fact, my business card, it says alleged writer. And it's not really a joke. As I said, I never learned this. I kind of fell into it and I love doing it. So when people say I'm a writer, there's a part of me that says, did I earn it or didn't I? I, I don't know. But what I realize about myself is I've always been a storyteller. Since I was a kid, I was a storyteller. And that can manifest itself in many different ways. These actors are storytellers, directors, editors, composers, again, storytellers. So for me, it's the medium of telling the story. And I always had played around with short stories and writing little things. Um, so I just decided with you know time between development, when I had little opening spots, I would start writing short stories or novels. I've got three novels I'm working on right now. But the first one, which was the nonfiction one, that's the um, non-user-friendly guide for aspiring TV writers, which was not the title I wanted, but the one the publisher wanted. Uh, that was something that I'd written up because I was keeping notes about working in the business. Uh, and those notes, I'd use them when I taught a class. When I was invited to lecture, I would talk I refer to these notes. And Kevin J. Anderson, again, uh, Kevin is an amazing writer. He's one of the most successful science fiction writers you're going to find. Um, he has like 23 or 26 million books sold worldwide. Uh, you, you probably know him best from um, the Dune series. He and Brian Herbert write all the Dune uh, books. Oh, so wow. I, hey, Herbert yeah. and Hebert. I'm a bear, or Hebert, and he's Herbert. Dune, by the way, I have to tell you real quickly. We had the award-winning sound um, that won the Oscar that came on the show for Dune, by the way. I don't know if you heard oh, that cool. episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, very cool. Yeah. Um, so, well, Kevin and I had met at a convention, um, I think either in Cleveland or Cincinnati. There was hardly anybody there, and we struck up this friendship. And so we decided we were going to work together on something eventually. So Kevin was coming out to Los Angeles. He lives in Colorado. And uh, we were going to have some meetings. And he knows very little about the television film business. So I said, well, I'll send him all my notes. So I sent him all these notes. And I said, if you want to wade through all this, this is like input on what the business is like, how the business works, things you can expect, things you watch out for, et cetera, et cetera. So when he comes out here, he he tells me, he goes, you know, I read through that. Uh, you, sh you should publish that. And I said, ah, you know, it's not enough there to publish. And he goes, how many words? And I brought it up and I said, it's only 80,000 words. And he pulled a book off my shelf and he said, this is probably 60,000 words. So with his help, um, I put it together into kind of a um, somewhat uh, understandable format. And um, he has his own company, Wordfire Publishing. So I, uh, I said, well, would you publish it? And he goes, absolutely, I'd publish it. So that was published. Uh, I just read through it um, last month to make sure it's still relevant. It's not something to teach you how to write, although it does touch on that a little bit. It's mostly about the business. And it also is interrupted every now and then with certain anecdotes about how I got in and what I've experienced. Some of them we've actually talked about now. So that was my first published book. Uh, then after that, yes, I did write... Um, Two and a half stories uh, for Jeff Sturgeon's Lost Cities of Earth, which is um, an amazing anthology with, uh, I can't believe I'm actually in the same company with uh, with a lot of the authors that are involved with that. Um, 
I wrote two stories and I um, half a story uh, because I co-wrote a story with uh, with Jeff Sturgeon. And then I was asked to write a story for the the first Alien versus Predator anthology book. And I was very proud to do that. Um, I'm actually very proud of that, uh, that particular story. Uh, but the Stalag X one, getting to that, this was, again, going back to Kevin J. Anderson, this was something that Kevin and I had started developing originally as a TV show. And it's basically a war of genocide in the future, humans versus aliens. And it centers around a concentration camp in the future where humans are kept and experimented upon. And the key to this is that this is a war of genocide. Nobody should take prisoners. You kill your enemy. That's it. Nobody takes prisoners. And yet the aliens, the Krail, who are winning this war, take this person prisoner and send him to a concentration camp where they're trying to figure out what makes humans human. And this is the first indication that the only reason they would be doing this is because they still think they can lose the war, which means it's possible to defeat them. Now, what Kevin and I wanted to write was mostly, again, um, a study of the characters. Uh, the thing about concentration camps throughout history is that to do the things that have been done to those victims, the perpetrators have to completely dehumanize them because once you dehumanize them, you can do anything. They're not human. You're not killing them. It's dehumanization. This is a, basically kind of a mind thing that happens. And it's throughout history. Any genocide has included this. The only weapon, the only defense that the victim has is to desperately hope that they can connect to the basic humanity of their perpetrators. If you can do that, maybe you have a chance to live. So this is why a lot of musicians, not a, not a huge number, unfortunately, but musicians had a better chance in the um, during the Holocaust of surviving because they could touch that humanity. Music is a humanity thing. So we wanted to pose this question. What if you don't even have that because your captors aren't even human? What happens at that point? And what happens to the people around you, the ones who are human? You're all basically part of one group. You turn on each other. You know, so we wanted to explore all of that. At the same time, a backdrop of this science fiction war that's going on. So we went through a few publishers. We ended up with the Vault Publishing, um, the interior artwork by Mike Ratera, amazing artist. And um, the Vault did a wonderful hardback version of this book. Kevin and I also wrote a novella about one of the side characters, a character named Deacon. It um, was an assassin trapped on the same planet where this concentration camp is. Um, and it's her story of how she ended up there and how she got stuck there. So this was put out and it was at uh, the local bookstores and Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, all of these places. So that's out there and it's, it's, we're doing well with that. Yeah. So and then we just, get a note from, uh, yeah, I just want, oh, everyone, go ahead. Yeah, I want everyone to know that, um, it's you, um, Stag Lag X is recently in the trade and you just signed a deal with New Republic Pictures for a feature film that will be, be directed That's by... That's what I was going to get to, yeah. Okay, Francis. Yeah. Do you want to come back for part part three? Francis Lawrence, who is also the director oh of Hunger Games, Red Sparrow, and I'm Legend. So do you want to come back to part three? Because we got more to talk about. <laughs> oh my gosh, we are really going on here. Yes, whatever you wish. Yeah, we'll do we're this again. Yeah, almost out of um, time to tell them all about your, your, your novel that's going to be out for them to go watch. Okay, so everyone come back to part three with Stephen L. Sears because okay. we've got so much more. <laughs> All right, we'll see you back for part three.